0: Welcome to another edition of Blast Points Presents. And we are here to share with you a wonderful interview from our good friend Tom Spina, the the Pete Best or Stuart Sutcliffe of Blast Points. Maybe on a good day, he's the Billy Preston. (laughs) He did a wonderful interview with the incredible Chris Wayless, who you might know from things like Return of the Jedi gremlins the melting faces and raiders the wonderful movie the fly to all the good stuff yeah chris wayless is an absolute legend and wow tom recently got to ask him a bunch of questions i know we are just always so honored to present these great
1: chats to you all so on that note take it away tom Thank you, Jason and Gabe, for having me be a part of this great series and for sharing what we've been doing here. And uh, frankly, just for all the fun we always have together. Uh, Chris Wayless is a legend in the effects world. He's an Academy Award winner. He is known as a visionary creature creator and makeup artist. And he's probably most known by casual fans for his design of the creatures in gremlins in 1984. He also, though, did amazing work on Dragon Slayer, Enemy Mine, a big favorite of mine, House 2, an exceptional sequel, uh, Arachnophobia, The Fly. He even directed The Fly too. Um, but fans of your show uh, and Luke's film fans probably know him best as the guy who did the melting heads for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Chris also worked with Lucasfilm at ILM on a number of projects, including Return of the Jedi. On that film, he helped start up the creature shop and further helped create concepts and maquettes for quite a number of the iconic alien characters. Uh, Blast Points fans already know how much I love those concept designs. Uh, My company, Regal Robot, has been creating uh, limited edition, signature edition Uh, Replicas of those classic creature maquettes Scanned right off the originals in the archives Um, It's an absolutely amazing project That I'm having so much fun with and our next maquette is Rehe's which happens to be one of Chris's designs. Uh, that's going to be available on February 1st. So check out RegalRobot.com. You'll see the full line. You can join our newsletter, so you hear all about our Star Wars and soon-to-be Indiana Jones replicas and decor. Uh, and also check out the uh, Regal Robot Fans and Collectors group on Facebook, which uh, just passed 500 members in our first week here. Uh, we're very excited about that. It's a great place to interact with other fans of... Uh, what we do and people that are inspired by the the cool stuff that happens behind the scenes on the movies we love. Um, I feel really fortunate to know Chris and, um, I'm thrilled that he was able to join me to chat today. Uh, this one's going to be a little less conversational than some of our other ones as we had to record our parts independently. Um, but it's still a good chat. Chris is a great, um, guy to listen to. He's got a lot of good energy and stories and, um, I just uh, uh and, and just years of, of wisdom uh from being in the effects industry at a really magical time. Uh, Chris is retired now, but he is still making, and in fact he's making some really, really fun stuff. A lot of crazy creatures and monsters. Uh, be sure to follow him on Instagram. He is at Chris Wayless, and you can keep up with all the fun he's having these days. Uh, and if you want to follow my companies, it's at Tom Spina Designs and at Regal Robot. We're everywhere. Follow us. Smash that like button. You know, whatever the kids say. Uh, and until then, sit back, enjoy the chat with Chris Wayless. So before we go back in time, I'm loving your current work. Absolutely wild, paper mache, creatures, apes, videos, Halloween displays. Um, It looks like you're having fun.
0: I am having fun. (laughs) I will be 70 this year. And uh, so I finally reached old manhood. And it's great. I'm fully retired uh and I can do what I want it was really weird to get to that point of uh being able to actually sort of commit to being retired because you know it's effects work is very tense demanding kind of stuff it's not easy to let go but uh once I did that <clears throat> I was actually a little lost for a while because suddenly I could do whatever I wanted, and it didn't have to work to a script or somebody else's vision or anything like that. So it was a little bit of a learning curve for me to do my own stuff. I mean, I always had to a point, but my drive was always the work. So, uh, yeah, things just went kind of odd for a while there while I was uh, sorting out what I wanted to do or not. I knew I really kind of wanted to walk away from all the techniques and materials that I uh, use for my career and get into a lot of less toxic stuff, cheaper stuff, you know? So the paper mache thing came uh, about uh, almost accidentally. I was doing, uh, I was getting uh, ear implants. i had one and I was having my second one put in. I knew it was there's a sort of a learning curve with those with these things as well. Uh, it takes a little while to get used to them. So I knew I was going to not be very functional in a sort of social uh, manner or anything like that. <clears throat> so it was a uh, I was looking online and just trying to find stuff that I could do a lot of uh, and do it cheaply and came across some paper mache stuff on Facebook. I was just like, oh, that's pretty cool, actually. I never knew paper mache could do that kind of stuff. And the more I studied what people were doing, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I think I could bring some of my techniques and the stuff I've learned doing creatures and stuff into this paper mache world and kind of make it my own, which I did, it took off, and it was just, it's been really, really great, really, really fun. I live up here in Portland now, and uh, I've hooked up with a whole bunch of uh, other artists. And most of them have some uh, media or entertainment industry uh, careers or, or experience. And uh, so we have a lot in common. So we've uh, we formed our little artist collective called Dark Arbor Lodge. It's pretty amazing because it's a... Just a bunch of seriously creative, talented artists who just like to hang out and have become good friends. Uh, it's really magical. Uh, I've not experienced anything like that before in my life. There was always the gang that you hang around with, but it wasn't like, like Dark Arbor Lodge, where we're meeting and we're planning and we're, uh, you know, just shooting the breeze trying to come up with crazy ideas or whatever it's really really rewarding This is a great time of life for me it's really amazingly fun to be able to do the stuff i want to do and have the time to
1: do it don post was a huge influence on me as a kid i remember going into the local magic shop and seeing this uh, various monster masks and stuff on the wall and always just saving every bit of my allowance and paper route money and stuff like that to bring home rubber monsters um, you got to work there for a bit. Can you talk a little about Don Post Studios and what that was like for you?
0: Yeah. So <laughs> I first moved to LA. I got a job at Disney shipping film, uh, for a year. Uh, I quit uh, to go to film school, ran out of money and needed a job. Now I knew Don Post, obviously all monster kids know Don Post and, uh, I was desperate for a job, I didn't know where to turn or where to look. So I called up Don Post Studios, I said, are, are you looking for uh, any workers, are you hiring? And, they, and the supervisor said, well we are looking for an, uh, an airbrush artist actually, are you any good with an airbrush? I said, well, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm pretty good I think. And he said, well can you come in tomorrow and uh, and we'll we'll see what you can do. And I, I said, great, we hung up. and. Realized I had no idea what an airbrush was. I had never even heard the term before. So I ran to the uh, hardware store and uh, they had a really cheap, I think it was like seven bucks, Badger uh, like starter airbrush and a, a can of compressed air. And I practiced like mad with that till the air ran out. Next day I went into Done Post and there was a tonal test on a uh, Oliver Hardy uh, mask, and so the supervisor. This was a three-color, uh, red, blue, and green uh, tonal test, and so he painted one half uh, in these three tones. And I had to match it, which is actually kind of a, uh, a tough challenge for a newcomer to airbrushing. Anyway, <clears throat> whether it was my whether it was actual talent or pure darn luck, I managed to match it pretty pretty darn well. The supervisor was quite impressed, and I was hired right away. <clears throat> I started as a uh, uh, production line mask painter. And these were the much cheaper, not full head, over just over the head, Halloween masks. You know, clown, uh, witch, a bum, an old man, whatever it was. Very simple. They usually got three colors of paint on them. The goal for all of these Uh, each of these painters, there were four or five of us, I think, maybe, was to, uh, paint an entire gross, 144 of these masks every day. (laughs) It's a lot of masks. (laughs) So you're literally, like, grabbing it, flipping it around, you know, and going through one one color, through 144, go through the next color with 144 until you're done with them, and, and, uh, uh, I did pretty good, uh, I have to say, and so fairly quickly, I was only at Don Post for a year, fairly quickly they moved me to the custom paint department, and this was the place to be, as far as I was concerned, because this is where they were painting all the monster masks, all the custom monster masks. And it was great, uh, you know, like learning so much so fast, it was fantastic. Don Post was Incredibly valuable for me, not just because I got to paint rubber masks and stuff, but I got to watch the whole production. I watched you know I saw how they were making their molds, how they were running their latex, how they were doing. I was taught hair work there at Don post i mean i I could do it beforehand, but i I learned a lot more there <clears throat> and i 'll never forget it was uh Bill Malone was uh, uh, sort of head of the lab at the Uh, at that point. I had just started in the custom paint uh, department, so I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. I'm going to be doing all the kind of shading and cool veining and all kind of, you know, great airbrush fun stuff. So I think it was literally, I think it was my first day, (laughs) and Bill Malone comes out with a uh, uh, Captain Kirk rubber mask. And they, they were casting, all the custom masks were cast in black latex. And so he's going to want this painted up and my eyes are like going yeah this is it this is my chance I'm gonna to get to do all kind of cool stuff on this and I'm like, well well what do you want just, he said just paint it white I'm like oh like white white or you want some shading you want some blue tones in just paint it white I'm like, oh, okay so I painted it white and dismissed it yeah, well sure it was the uh, it was the primo uh, Halloween mask so for the film which I didn't actually know until years later <laughs> so that was fun so Don Post was a huge huge stepping stone for me I worked my way up uh, they actually hired me to work in the lab I was there for a few months and uh, did a few projects uh, TV commercials and worked out some hair patterns and things like that uh, and then uh, I was taken aside by the, you know, supervisor of the company, and basically said, uh, we, you know, we really see a, a big future for you here. And I'm like, one, well, great, because Don Post was doing all these TV commercials and film work. I'm like, this is going to be like me getting into the movie business for real. And uh, the next thing he said was, uh, but we're going to cut out all the movie TV stuff. We're just going to concentrate on making Halloween masks. So by that point, I'd spent a year making Halloween masks, so I kind of got that down. I didn't think there was a big future for me in that. So Bob Short, who was also working there at the time, and I formed a a, a limited partnership for like the next year, and we did a whole bunch of odd little projects. But it was very strange because at the end of the year, we kind of looked, At each other kind of said, well, we've done all these projects, but we've only done like three of them together. We were basically loners that we were just like occasionally work together. So that partnership didn't last. But that all came out of Dampo Studios. And that really was the doorway for me into the film business.
1: Okay, so I have to ask, you worked on Airplane, correct? Uh, Was that before ILM? What did you do on it? Uh, It's a favorite film for so many folks I know.
0: I did work on airplane, and that was uh, during Bob Short and I's partnership. And we did—we didn't do a lot on it. I did a beating heart on a desk. Uh, we did some like rubber props, stunt props, and things like that. I really don't remember. We did—we did like four or five things, maybe more, but it I, I wasn't a lot. Uh, but it was fun, you know. It was—it was kind of a intimidating. To work with those crazies because those guys were pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. But it was fun, you know, it was a great movie.
1: How is it that you came to be at ILM?
0: So, the whole ILM story was that this also came out of Don Post Studios. I think it was John Berg and Phil Tippett came to Don Post Studios to see if they could get a production run of Rubber Piranhas <coughs> for the film Piranha. Uh, <coughs> wound up being too expensive. So they uh, they left, they went, went and walked away or whatever, but then uh, John Bird came back and asked if they had any people that could help work on the effects team. But Bob Short could work on the FX team. So he did. Uh, He was a certified diver and all that. So this was for all the underwater stuff uh, at the pool at uh, USC, I think it was. And uh, so they started production. And, oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. They did this. uh, They had to do some underwater tests. And this was in January in the pool. And... It was not a heated pool. And they asked me to come out and be a test subject for some blood effects and stuff, tubing and whatever. And so I, they all got to, war, to wear wetsuits, and I didn't. <laughs> so I'm like in the water turning blue, and, and uh, that was a pretty crazy time. But then they, this was before actually filming the effects stuff, which was a little later. And then they started doing the underwater stuff and realized they were understaffed. And so uh, Bob Short said, I know Chris Wayless is great, does all kind of cool stuff, whatever you want, he'll do that. And So they brought me in on that, and that was, uh, uh, again, you know, my entryway into uh, actual filmmaking. Piranha was the first film I actually ever worked on. Uh, It's technically not true, because at... uh, on Post Studios, I cut out rubber spiders for Kingdom of the Spiders. (laughs) Uh, So then, I had a relationship with John and Phil, and uh, this was, I can't remember, maybe a year later even, and uh, Phil asked if uh, I would be available to uh, come work at ilm basically making molds was uh, was going to be my job uh for dragon slayer so I got a one year contract specifically for dragon slayer which uh, which was cool we got we got to make a great dragon i think it was a lot of work I got to do a lot of different stuff uh, uh you know sculpting mold making I did a lot of the running of stuff uh, I did a couple of specific uh, rigs like a mechanical cloth or a close-up of it flying it Ralph Richardson or whatever so that was a great experience and I got to work with the top people in the entire industry at the time so it was heaven on earth
1: (laughs) so years back we restored one of the giant dragon slayer heads it was amazing I know you worked on that film along with uh, some other ILM greats Uh, can you talk a little bit about that
0: Ken Ralston sculpted the baby dragons. I ran all the molds, I did all I ran all the puppetry, did all the armatures for them, uh the head getting cut off, all that stuff. I sculpted all the pieces for the walking dragon that Phil animated, and uh ran all those pieces, all Phil assembled and painted it. I did uh a section, big section of wing, uh bunch of odds, like, just odds and ends, Um, because there were a lot of, like, we just need one close-up of part of the tail for one shot kind of thing, and so, okay, crank that out. Uh, But Dragon Slayer was really great. Of course, I did the puppet head, uh, the close-up puppet head. That was basically after they filmed everything and realized they just couldn't get the footage that they needed with the, the big mechanical head. So... That was, uh, that was my big part of uh, Dragon Slayer. I, I did a lot of stuff
1: on that. We have a mutual friend in Bob Burns. He and Kathy um, have just been some of the most supportive folks I've known. I think any effects person or, or uh, monster artist that knows them has that same feeling. Um, I I've always see a lot of your work in their museum. Uh, were they big influences on you?
0: Mutual friends with Bob Burns, hell yes. (laughs) Uh, So, Bob Burns was, you know, if you're a monster kid, you know, Bob Burns was a legend. Uh, And I came from the East Coast uh, at the time, and so the whole West Coast experience for me was brand new. And meeting Bob Burns, I actually met Bob Burns on Gremlins when he brought the Time Machine, uh, for filming. But I really, I was so crazy at the time, I i didn't remember that. Where I really hit it off with Bob was when we went on a trip, both went on a trip to Japan. And boy, did we bond. I mean, we were just like, every subject that came up was kind of like, you too? I'm so into that, you know? It was just like, it was a Marx co- toy collector, I was a Marx toy collector. You know, we had all the monster stuff Uh going and just you know we just had a great time on that trip together and we just became very very good friends
1: did you ever get to work on any of their halloween shows
0: obviously you know we read about bob's halloween shows uh in i can't remember was it starlog or fangoria or something like that and i you know it was just like to monster kids everywhere that was just like the epitome of what hollywood halloween should really be so I always wanted to work on one. I never did get to work on one. He had stopped doing those by the time he and I connected. So, and then there was one other one that he did later on, The Thing. But no, was it was The Thing. I think it was The Thing. And, uh, but I was completely unavailable at the time. <clears throat> so no, as, as, although Bob and I spent <laughs> many years sort of together, but I never got a chance to actually work with them on anything.
1: You began in Creature Effects at a time that was an absolute explosion of innovation. Uh, What was that like? I became a
0: monster maker at, like, probably the best possible time in the history of film because uh, I was at Don Post when Star Wars came out, and so the timing worked out incredibly well. My leaving uh, Don Post and sort of getting into doing props and creatures and stuff and it was it was insane i mean it was just insane there were so many ripoffs happening so fast and so many tv commercials that needed aliens so many tv pilots that needed uh uh, aliens tv shows that were uh sci-fi all of a sudden and so this was like just just this what had been pretty dead marketplace exploded, like completely exploded. Part of that led to everybody sort of starting to push the envelope a little bit more with techniques and materials. And materials were changing at the time. This was also the, uh, the time when stuff like uh, urethanes became much softer, more pliable, more usable for uh, skinning things. Uh, this was a time when Uh, Silicone was really in development as well, and it was getting much more dependable, uh, versatile. So it wasn't just a a bunch more work. It was a bunch more options. And so as these materials became uh, better and and more available, uh, they became adapted to new techniques. So suddenly you can do things where you couldn't do them a year ago because the, the material just wasn't there yet. So it was a very, very innovative time, and it was innovative in a way that was, I think, unique, because it was not really linear. It wasn't kind of like, here's the way it was done before, here's a product that will let you take it to the next step kind of thing. It was really more about, wow, here's this wild thing. It just kind of can do a whole bunch of stuff. Where can we push this? And it wasn't, it was very scattered uh uh, you know sort of shotgun style approach to effects at the time because there wasn't a lot of history for uh, uh involved puppetry obviously the uh, special effects makeup has had been developing really well with uh, led of course by Dick Smith but stuff like radio control coming in and all the stuff was kind of like continually happening all these new techniques and materials were all getting incorporated into the effect stuff right away like really right away a little too fast sometimes but uh but yeah it was amazing and you didn't you didn't think about it it wasn't kind of like wow this is an amazing time it was just kind of like you are too busy drinking in all this stuff to try and figure out how to make it work for you but it was great it was a great time and it, it was this wonderful finding time I think for all the effects guys, it was kind of like you suddenly realize, hey, I can do stuff that I, I really never imagined I'd be able to do just because I've just learned how to do this mechanically and, I, and it works perfectly with this new material. So it really was a very, very unique time.
1: How did you feel about Star Wars at the time?
0: It was interesting for me because I was a George Lucas fan from uh, THX. and. Star Wars had originally been written up as a, a space battle told from the enemy's side or something like that. That was sort of like the, uh, the Hollywood line that had come out a year or two before the film. I was still at Don Post when it came out. My dad was in town visiting, and <laughs> you'll love this. At Don Post, I got a whole bunch of free tickets, and nobody wanted them. I mean, nobody wanted free tickets to the movies. I'm like going, I love movies. I want to see this movie. I'll take the tickets. So I took my dad to see it. At uh, This was a showing at Fox. And I was blown away. I mean, just totally blown away. But even better was seeing my dad, like, totally blown away. Because he said, it just reminds me of when I was a kid and... Uh, Flash Gordon came out. You know, for us, it was so real and so incredibly cool. And this has that same feel. And I'm going, okay, this is <laughs> this is uh, this is one of those great moments uh, of experiencing humanity. It was really fun. I mean, really great. Just great to see my dad so excited about it, and and just great to get so excited about it myself. Because obviously, you know, at that point, there hadn't been anything. Really liked that, and science fiction had been a, a very quiet genre for quite a while. There was the occasional big picture, but not a lot. It was uh, uh, it was kind of a dry time that it came out. So it was, yeah. I mean, I loved it. I a huge, huge fan about it. So obviously, you know, when I was asked to work at ILM, it was kind of like, okay, this that was the pinnacle. Of what you could possibly be in the effects industry at the time was someone working on a Star Wars movie. And so, yeah, like when they asked, it wasn't like I'm going to go, eh, I don't, I'll t- yeah, I know it's a big deal, but no, it's like, it's the deal. So that was great. You know, I was, I had this just an entire roller coaster ride in my career uh, from the start of it to, you know, I don't know. I guess maybe The Fly or after that, but it was just, like, relentless. It was just project after project. In the early days on the little stuff, I was working on four or five projects at a, at a time. And it was one point, I was working on 13 projects at the same time. They were all small, but it was still—it was pretty crazy.
1: So, Return of the Jedi comes around, and uh, Phil said you were originally going to hit the creature shop and even did some of the hiring— um, before that, you had to leave for other work. Uh, who did you hire and why? That was
0: an interesting time at ILM. Uh, I, I worked on three pictures while I was there. I worked on Dragon Slayer, worked on Raiders, and worked on uh, Jedi. And on Jedi, I was doing designs and designing the creature shop and setting that all up um, just physically. I hired a few people, uh, basically, looking for trainees more than anything else. It wasn't like I was going to say we have to hire up the top crew out of LA because that budget wasn't really there then. But I did hire. I hired Kirk Thatcher, who was uh, a friend of Joe Johnston's. Came up to visit and said he was really interested and seemed like a good guy. Seemed like he was talented, so I hired him. Um, my contract ran out at ILM. And they were at a point where they had put ceilings on what they were paying uh, employees and stuff like that. And I knew I could do a lot better on my own, so I uh, I bid farewell to ILM, which was it was kind of sad because great, great, great people there, amazing talent, uh, just such a learning process. Very intense learning year for me.
1: You did a number of the creature designs for that film, um, and uh, most of these were small-scale maquettes. Uh, when did you do those maquettes?
0: Yes, so I did. I did a ton of maquettes and some sketches as well for Jedi while I was on uh, Raiders and Dragon Slayer. It was a very crazy time there for me because. I was filming on Raiders, I was filming on Dragon Slayer on the same day. Literally, we'd go do morning shoots on Dragon Slayer, puppet heads or whatever it is, and then it's, uh, you know, do a test on the Raider, one of the Raiders' heads or something like that, prep while prepping the next ones. So it was very, very busy. And so when Phil said, Well, we have to do a whole bunch of maquettes as well, I'm like, Okay. So it's was literally, you know, film a shot on one stage, run upstairs to either the rubber room or the art department, you know, sculpt as fast as possible, sculpt maquettes, and uh, you know, put it, literally put them in the oven, run back down, do another shot, run back up, take the maquette out, uh, you know, let it cool down, run back down, set up another shot, uh, you know, there's a break, run upstairs, spend lunch, you know, sculpting and painting maquettes. Uh, and then... There were actually a bunch I did at home that I never even turned in because I I, I left before I I had a chance to turn them in, but uh, it was very very busy. I mean I, I would get there early and I would start doing maquettes just to like get wake up over coffee basically, and uh, we did quite a few. I you know I wasn't sure we didn't have a script. We didn't have you know we didn't have Ralph McQuarrie designs or anything like that. There was no reference at that point. They uh, we basically had no information other than make a bunch of alien designs. Okay? I mean, the, the only guideline we really had was it's probably mostly going to be masks and hands. So that's what it was. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm asking Phil, so what? Like, what is George's process for this? What should I be looking to do? And Phil just said, you know, just do as many as possible. You know, George usually says no to everything. So the first time George comes in to see the, this first batch of maquettes, so we done, he comes, Oh, cool. I like all of them. They're good. (laughs) It was just absurd because some of the maquettes had been raced through really, really quickly, particularly by me. I'm, I'm a pretty fast sculptor. I certainly was at the time, but I raced through a few of those a bit too quickly.
1: So it seems like a high percentage of the designs you made wound up in the films. And, uh, even, even some of them are, are fan favorites. Um, from a design point of view, what do you think makes a good monster?
0: Okay, that's a good question. What do I think it makes a good monster? Uh, I, I would say two things. Most importantly would be readability. And by readability, I mean that you look at the creature and you... You can identify that creature immediately, like within the first two or three seconds. You kind of get, okay, I know where every part of that creature is. I know what what that is. Uh, you know, sometimes you get a a design that's just just way too busy or way too subtle or whatever it is, but it lacks that immediacy in the design. And I always go for that. I always go for that that kind of like. Okay, I got that thing right away. I know what that is. Because I think that just... Then that lets you play with the subtleties on the next level of detail. The other thing I would say is really critical is relatability. Uh, It's different from readability. Readability is identifying something. Relatability is essentially being able to put either an emotion or a humanity to it. Uh, So relatability is... you You really see it's a... It's a scaly creature blah 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 whatever read relatability is i'm terrified of that, or i I can see the character of life in it so those are two of the I think that for me the two most critical aspects of creature design and you know it's it's particularly challenging when you're doing aliens because you you kind of want it to not look human at all and <laughs> but you still want it to be relatable, and so it's difficult to get away from the uh, human proportions, at least between the eyes and the mouth. So, you'll see on some of my designs, they're bigger heads or whatever, but the spacing between the eyes and the mouth is still very proportional to human uh, that human triangle. So, that's that's designing
1: aliens. <laughs> were there any designs that were influenced by existing creatures or old movie monsters?
0: That's that's a definite yes. Um so I did you know nature's so inspiring. It's whatever you think you can come up with that's incredible and new and different. Nature's like been there Done that. You want to see something? Look at this, and you're like, "Whoa!" <laughs> so it's. I always use nature as a reference. I always, I'm always looking and studying animals and things like that, and looking at the the natural forms that are within these creatures, these animals, the unique features, the uh, uh, the something, whatever's a little bit different. It's commonplace now. Back then, you know, we're we were we were. Still early on the on the alien monsters uh, uh, scenario, the whole avalanche of creature work that came out of the '80s. So the uh, for me, I've got to look through the reference here. The uh, where the uh, real world, the name where nature influenced me was uh, on a couple of them. I had there's one that's. Uh, it's listed here as a bug alien, uh, but it's actually taken from a Lystrosaurus, which was a little uh, mammal-like reptile that lived way, way back when. But I just it's got the uh, same sort of face of, of that.
1: How do you think the final creatures looked compared to the concept maquettes that you made?
0: You know, I have to say, I, I think they did a great job of copying the... Uh, the maquette designs, I mean, they were pretty straightforward, but they they didn't seem to have played a lot around with uh, the, the basic design. It was following it through, and I think they did a great job. I think they all look good.
1: So um, this is like the lightning round. Uh, well, I, I'd love to just talk about a few of the the more interesting maquettes that you had. Um, like I said, there's a, a pretty good bunch of these that you got to work on. Um so starting with um, Rihis, let's uh, talk about a few of those, and um, you can kind of just tell us a little bit about each if you don't mind.
0: See, you have to understand, I didn't know any of my maquettes by the final names. We had our own names for them. So I never actually learned what the, uh, the film names were. Uh, Rees, uh which I knew as Three Eyes, and that was <laughs> really for me. It was sort of a a fun upgrade of uh, an old Irwin Allen style uh, monster from you know Lost in Space or uh, Boys to the Bottom of the Sea. I saw it as because it was you know it was very exaggerated. You know it's got these big eyes out on stalks and uh, got almost a bovine sort of uh, uh, muzzle. But uh, that was a fun one. I enjoyed sculpting that one. I remember sculpting that one. It was just kind of like, it seemed a bit silly to me at the time. Uh, I didn't think it was actually going to get chosen, but it did. So that was cool.
1: Uh, Next up would be Toothface, a.k.a. the (laughs) Whippid.
0: Toothface is very specifically taken from one species, and that is... uh, I think it's a South Asian bush pig or something like that. It's very much uh, uh, what I did in that design. I, I basically took a long boar head and, sh- and and you know crushed the <laughs> uh, the, uh, the front and back ends and removed the nose uh, and the ears. So that's that was that was an easy one. It was very straightforward, and it was a it was a. Uh, uh, an animal that i was very familiar with i i, I find a lot of inspiration in uh, all the various pig forms uh,
1: the next one is a jabba the hut concept bus this one always felt very ralph macquarie to me um, can you talk a little bit about this sculpt how it came to be it's it's a really beautiful little piece
0: i actually did a bunch of Jabba designs uh only a few of which i even submitted the one you're referring to. I, uh, I haven't seen Ralph McQuarrie's design, Ralph had not, I don't think Ralph had even been working on the project when we were working on it, uh, so, and Joe Johnson had asked me to come up with a few alternate Java designs, uh, and so I did, and that uh, that one was just uh, a suggest. that was more from Joe's des- uh, description than anything else, because we didn't we had very very, very little to go on in terms of designing these characters and what they were supposed to be able to do or not do. Uh, we didn't have a script, we didn't have storyboard we didn't have anything you know we basically do a bunch of aliens so that's one of my uh my Java ones uh, I think that, that that one was based more on it being a guy in a suit uh rather than some of the other ones which are designed as puppets or you know operated by various different
1: ways. Squidhead, um it's funny the, the final creature is is very cool, obviously kind of iconic. There was an action figure, everything. The Maquette is is kinda gross. He's very slimy looking. Uh what are your thoughts on that one?
0: Squidhead was a fun one for me. I actually, you know, I like the challenge of trying to take the concept of a squid, which uh, is, uh, is a lot more involved than squid head, and, and sort of uh, alienizing it. So I just did, obviously, did the selective compression. I reduced the number of tentacles, and what our fins on the squid I turned into these, you know, strange little organic side things that do something that aliens do. So, that, you know, it was fun. I, I, it was a really good, good time. I love designing aliens. I love designing creatures. I mean, I'm all about creatures. I love doing all kind of practical effects, but I'm a creature guy from day one. I mean, I just love coming up with variations on creature themes. So this whole Jedi experience is just like, yeah, bring it on.
1: The mole guy, who they cleverly called Elam, (laughs) which mole spelled backwards, um... I love that there's some faux fur in this. Uh, Do you like adding other elements and things like that into your sculpts?
0: Elam guy. Yeah, so... mole is taken partially from... I'm trying to remember what creature it is now. Uh, I think it's a sun spider. Maybe uh, it's a... It's a... uh, An arthropod that has like really, really powerful jaws on it. I changed the eyes on it and put a, you know, uh, no, nostrils on it and made it furry, but the inspiration was from a, a real world creature. The f- whole thing about uh, fur is, is just one aspect of dealing with these maquettes because, you know, they're all done in Sculpey, super Sculpey, I guess. And You can vary the textures on them a lot. You can make them look very, very different, but it's always nice to add another dimension to the the singular material you're working with. So whether that was adding costuming or weaponry or whatever, uh, it really made a difference. So yeah, the whole thing about adding fur was actually to make, because we didn't know whether these were just gonna be masks and hands with costumes or full suits. So a lot of the fur ones are kind of like, fursuits are easier to make than other kinds of suits. So this will be simpler. So that's why there's a couple that just have fur for no real reason.
1: The next up is Ishi Tib, uh, also sometimes known as a starfish alien. Um, He's got kind of a beak on him. uh, Very, very interesting anatomy. Uh, Where'd this design come from?
0: Ishi Tib. Okay, I got to tell you, Ishi Tib, which I don't even remember what I called him when I made him, but that was my favorite design. I mean, that—that's a real Chris Wallace design. That's one where it's not based on anything. It was more about playing with the forms and seeing what uh, what the clay told me to do. And I really, really liked it. I—I—I I, kind of wish I hadn't done it for Jedi and done it just for myself. <laughs> But it's definitely my favorite design that I did for the whole, for the show.
1: There's also a, a beast of burden that uh, never made it into the movie. Uh, I might have turned up in one of the Ewoks movies. I have to look back on that. But um, that uh, the maquette seems to be built over a horse figure. Can you talk about that one?
0: Ah, uh, yes. That was one that Phil specifically asked me to do. And that was... Uh, he wanted to do it on a horse because horse would be easier to work with than an elephant, apparently, or any other animal. So, and it would big be big enough to make it uh, to uh, to look larger for the Ewoks. So I ran over to Toys R Us and picked up a buyer. Uh, I can't remember what kind of horse it was. And, uh, and and yeah, I just I threw that one together. That was very very quick. It was basically designed to be something that you could just literally throw on over a horse. So it's it's just a a three quarter mask that hangs over the top, and basically different furring and dressing, and a, and a sort of reptilian tail for it. It was very quick. I didn't. Really, I actually didn't like that one at all. I'm glad they didn't do it.
1: So I am I, assuming you've seen Phil's kind of. Caveman looking Ewok, um, you clearly you did a, a few different takes on the Ewoks as well. Um, how do you think the two compared, and maybe even how did they compare to the, the finals?
0: Oh, Phil's yeah. So the whole design of the Ewoks was was uh, intriguing for me. Again, didn't have a lot of information. Uh, all this description we had was like they're little furry guys they're going to be dwarves and midgets dressed up so okay Uh, Phil had done his uh, caveman version uh, which was kind of cool but it didn't sound like what George was after from what the descriptions I was getting so I did a whole series of uh, furrier uh, sort of wombat kind of uh, uh, versions, and I, you know, I think that's... George okayed that one, and I did a whole bunch of stuff for Stuart Freeborn, uh, patterns to follow and things like that, which somewhere along the way got lost, and he abandoned them and turned them into teddy bears, which if that's the way it goes, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so, But yeah, I mean, I actually really liked my Ewok design, I thought they were kind of uh, cuter than Phil's and not as teddy bear as as the final ones. They were more like real animals. Anyway.
1: (laughs) They didn't use my design. Last up, there is a really groovy-looking Cyclops guy with a goatee. He, he actually shows up on the cover of the Smithsonian Magazine with a bunch of the other maquettes. Uh, he feels very outer limits to me. I don't know. Uh, can you talk about him at all?
0: Uh, the goatee Cyclops guy. <laughs> okay, so this is uh, that was probably the fastest maquette I did of all of the very fast maquettes I did. I literally, that literally like a two or three minute sculpt, um, and probably even less for the paint job. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, again that that was just the filler uh, for this sort of like we need to show uh, George a slew of like 30 or 40 maquettes, and so you know, pick the three you like and make a whole bunch that you don't care about. And that was one that. Although I liked what it, it, it came out as. It, it's pretty crude.
1: <laughs> How does it feel 40 years later to see so many of these alien designs that you did showing up in modern Star Wars movies, shows, books, video games? Um, why do you think these designs hold up so well? Why do you think they keep keep showing up?
0: Good questions. It feels very strange for for me to see any of my stuff continuing on today the fact that you know I'm still seeing Gremlin's merchandise being uh, cranked out and people are still you know telling me uh, going on about the fly and there's still you know collectors pieces coming out on these films um, I love seeing the Star Wars universe getting fleshed out using these designs as entire Civilizations as entire different species, as opposed to you know just sort of alien dressing in in Java's hut, uh, Java's hut <laughs> in uh, Java's place. So uh, it's I mean I love seeing that. I think that's great. It's great seeing that they're keeping the designs alive, that they're making use of them, that they think they're good enough to to last. I think part of the reason. Their lasting is that they're pretty decent designs. I mean, some of them, uh, you know, they're good, strong, identifiable, readable, relatable designs um, that still work. Part of it is also just the fact that, you know, they're established parts uh, of the Star Wars universe, so it's always great to see the, them coming back.
1: And the last question, I, I asked this of, of a lot of folks, you know, do you think practical miniatures, puppets, and models still have a place in film? Um, and I, I assume I already know the answer is yes, but if so, uh, why do you think that those techniques endure?
0: I definitely think they do. I mean, I, you know, CG uh, work has taken over the industry for sure, but in terms of practical effects, there's still a fascination for them. People love to know that somebody put in the ingenuity to trick them, you know? It's just kind of, I, I And I I love it, especially with miniatures, which are... Miniatures are just cool. They're like the best toys on the planet, okay? <laughs> so really, it's it's more that... I love finding out that something I assumed was full scale was done as a miniature and it i I totally totally accepted it as real. It's just it, it's it's not just it's not that it's critical anymore because they can do anything with CG, but it's really fun, okay? It's more rewarding as an audience member to be able to sit there and kind of go, "Oh man, that's a cool mask." I mean, I love that they did that practical. It's just there's a feel to practical stuff that actors can relate to when they're filming. Uh, So there's still a lot of advantages. Obviously, their presence of these practical effects in films is greatly reduced, but it's not gone. It's still there, especially in uh, uh, other aspects of the entertainment industry. The TV commercials do a lot of practical stuff. So I think there's always going to be room for that in the industry. It's really a matter of where things balance out. You know, it's kind of been uh, a, just a, a flood of CGI stuff because it's a technology that's been developing really, really quickly, really, really well. They, you know, every time they they find a new project, they fix a new find. Sorry. Every time they find a new problem, they fix a new problem. So it's continually getting better. It's continually getting much more subtle and being used much more subtly. You know, when CGI first came on the scene, it was like everything had to be this gigantic, overblown spectacle because that was suddenly a thing that was a lot cheaper to do with computers. And so it's gotten a little bit more specified. You don't get a lot of those just like random blockbuster big for the sake of being big kind of films. They're still there, but they're they're making them a lot better now. Anyway, that's about it for my my Jedi creatures uh, time. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of crazy, but it was very inventive. And I got to play with creature design. uh, And, you know, that's what I love to do. So, all good.
1: So that wraps up a fun chat. I hope everybody here enjoyed it. Uh, Big thanks to Chris for all of his time today, and uh, big thanks to you guys for listening, uh, as well as to Gabe and Jason at Blast Points for hosting this, and I hope everybody really enjoyed it. Uh, If you want to follow along with what Chris is doing, follow at Chris Wayless on Instagram, and you can find uh, me and my companies as at Tom Spina Designs and at Regal Robot on social everywhere. Go find us, follow us, like us, tell your friends. And uh, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day, and i uh, I wish you all the best.